Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan raises important questions about the meaning of peacekeeping and peacebuilding in the 21st century. Uh, there's a panel discussion coming up today uh, called The Afghanistan Crisis, The Challenges of Peacekeeping and Peacebuilding. That'll be happening today at 4.30 p.m. in Old Main Room 115 at the U, at, on the USU campus. And it's also on Zoom. And uh, you're, you're free to join that. Welcome to join that from anywhere you're listening. And uh, just go to uh, history.usu.edu. And uh, on the announcement there, just click on the word Zoom, and that'll take you to the link. And uh, those participating in that panel discussion are uh, Samaya Savardze, Afghani education and development expert, uh, Brigadier General Tyler Smith with Utah National Guard, and Dr. Daniel Ross, who's Associate Professor uh, of History at Utah State University, and uh, she joins us on the program today. Uh, Welcome, Professor Ross. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We also uh, bring in uh, two of uh, the three leaders of a new certificate program at Utah State University. It's the USU uh, uh, Global Peacebuilding Certificate, and uh, we bring in uh, Patrick Mason, who is Leonard J. Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at USU. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks, Tom. Uh, We also welcome in uh, Colin Flint, who's Distinguished Professor of Political Geography in the Department of Political Science at uh, Utah State University. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having us. Uh, so uh, the sponsors here for this event are the Global Peacebuilding Certificate uh, Program and the Tanner Talks from the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Well, let me uh, let me start with you, Colin Flint. Um, why did we want a certificate in global peacebuilding at USU? So there's a push uh, across the state uh, and in the university and in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences for certificates that uh, give students knowledge and skills to help them in their careers post uh, once they graduate. And peace building is a set of knowledge but also a set of skills uh, that students need uh, and a bunch of employers uh, both in the private and public sector including NGOs are actively seeking and so this certificate is to help students as they work through their degrees to be able to focus on questions about what is peace, what is peace building, and how do they begin to gain the skills that can put them on such a career path? Uh, so, Patrick Mason, um, d- define for me, if you would. Uh, of course, we'll go through the program uh, on definitions, but initial definitions of peacekeeping and peace building. Yeah, so so peacekeeping, we, we typically think about the roles that uh, militaries play in uh, trying to secure the peace in particular areas of, uh, of major conflict. And so we, we've seen these kinds of peacekeeping operations around the world, especially we think about the United Nations and, and its troops, uh, kind of multilateral and multinational troops that are sent into conflict areas in order to, uh, to stop uh, the, you know, the bloodshed uh, and to establish a force, a military force, uh, in order to, uh, to, to, so, you know, to create the peace or at least end the, the, the conflict. In, in uh, peace studies terms, we oftentimes refer to this as negative peace. Uh, or, or the absence of conflict. And of course, cer- certainly that's preferable to, uh, to, to the alternative of, of open conflict and, and open bloodshed. Uh, but we also think about uh, another concept that we call positive peace, uh, which, which is uh, peace with justice or, or peace with, uh, so not, 
not just the absence of conflict, but uh, but creating the conditions in which uh, in which you can create equality. Uh, you know, uh, strong political institutions, educational, civil society institutions, and and the opportunity for human flourishing. And so that broader sensibility we refer to as peace building. Uh, so certainly there's a role for governments. There may be a role for the military. Uh, oftentimes there is. Uh, but it's also uh, very much located in the sense of, of civil society, NGOs, uh, the educational sector, uh, so, so nonprofits. And, and this is much more of a kind of ground up uh, sensibility that engages local people that is less kind of imposed on them uh, and, is, and is much more in partnership with, with people in order to, to sustain the peace o- over the long term. We'll turn to uh, Danielle Ross and uh, talk about, apply this to Afghanistan. You'll be on this panel, Afghanistan Crisis Challenges of Peacekeeping and Peacebuilding. Uh, I'm focusing on that word crisis. It seems like this has been at least a 20-year crisis or centuries-long crisis. Well, um, I mean, really, when I talk about, you know, a 200-year crisis rather than a centuries-long, making it sound like it goes back, you know, thousands of years, this is a crisis that's very much rooted in uh, the rise of the European colonial order in the 19th century, um, and then sort of the Cold War and its its fallout in the second half of the 20th century. Um, so, uh, you, you, I think you study Afghanistan. Central Asia, right, is your focus? My focus is uh, actually post-Soviet Central Asia, uh-huh. okay. which is just to the north of Afghanistan. But Afghanistan is part of that larger cultural world, um, both in the pre-colonial and colonial eras, and also the Soviet Union and Russia have had you know, a fraught relationship with Afghanistan, to put it mildly. <laughs> So what are the, um, we know some of these, but what are the what are the conflict points? One of those that we're seeing very starkly now is, you know, a clash of values, culture clash. Well, if you look at this actually in the longer term, Afghanistan is sort of one of the poster children for what happens when you have intense and ongoing interference from um, colonial powers and global superpowers. Uh, First, the British in the 19th century, who are instrumental by the 1890s in establishing what are now the borders of Afghanistan. Um, And these are borders to which the governments of various governments of Afghanistan have not unanimously agreed. And that's specifically the Durant line that divides, uh, really divides the Pashtun population, the largest population in Afghanistan itself, in two between Afghanistan and Pakistan. So this is one point of ongoing conflict, um, is where the border of the state should have been. Um, as you've had the interference of the British, the, the Soviets, the Americans, um, these different groups have taken sides and financed different parties uh, within Afghanistan itself. And um, we won't say necessarily created tensions between different value systems and different political groups, but have certainly exacerbated those. Uh, and probably the latest, if we want to talk about now the um, the sort of, we want to call it radical Islam, fundamentalist Islam, um, right Islam, whatever we want to call the, the Taliban. Um, that comes out of the Soviet-Afghan war and the groups that sort of I won't say the United States necessarily chose to fund, but you know Pakistan at that time, who uh, 
which was and is building an Islamist state itself, chose to direct the U.S. and other international resources toward these particular kinds of groups. So it's not simply that you have an organic conflict between modernity and tradition or East and West that arises in Afghanistan, but you actually the interference of foreign powers exacerbates this conflict. And that's what we're dealing with now is a landscape that has been shaped also by ongoing foreign interference. And I think just to kind of conclude, as we move forward talking about peacekeeping, I think we have to think about what our future role is in the country. I want to pick that up, but I want to have you expand on what you just said. Uh, that's interesting. I think we we tend to think in conventional terms uh, this is a clean, linear clash of uh, cultures and civilizations. You're saying it's more muddied than that. It's very much more muddied than that. Um, the what we think, what we call now, sort of this conflict between modernity and tradition, or Western and Islamic values, emerges out of the colonial period, where you have two reactions to European expansion in the Islamic world. One of those reactions is let's be more like Europe. Uh, they have the technology and the guns, to put it bluntly, but also the forms of organization that allow have allowed them to become dominant. Let us adopt those same values and technologies and forms of organization. Out of that, you have a reaction um, where others in Islamic society, Muslim societies will say, These are not, this is not our culture. This is a foreign way of doing things. We need to go back to what our culture and values were and are. Now, of course, that's a 20th, 20th century interpretations of what they imagined the time of the prophet or the Middle Ages or other periods were like. And you have these two groups uh, jostling for control. In Afghanistan, we see this at the end of the 1920s as you have uh, King Amanullah of Afghanistan, who he and his wife are sort of called the John and Jackie Kennedy of um, um, the Muslim world in the 1920s. They're very kind of in favor of European Western culture. They dress in very Western ways. They promote Westernization of education and women's roles. And by the end of the 1920s, when they go out you know, on a trip abroad, uh, more conservative forces seize control of the country and try to reverse the changes that they have made. So this is, again, not coming out simply of you know, an organic growth within Afghanistan, but these responses to different groups in the country positioning themselves in different ways vis-a-vis -vis Western, um, Western culture and also Western political control and economic control of the region. Um, and you see sort of a repeat of this as you're coming through the Soviet-Afghan war and the aftermath, where again you have the Taliban that positions itself, you know, by the, uh, and then during the 1990s is very much an alternative to Western values and Western forms of organization and a rejection of those forms. Um, and it, in the way, it's a rejection of those same forms of culture and organization that have oppressed the country itself, um, at least sort of in their eyes. Mm. Um, uh, I want to come, I'll come back to this idea of the future, you know, future of the, the West in Afghanistan. I'll turn to Colin Flint next and maybe talk about this from a geopolitical lens. Uh, maybe from the lens of you know watching in the in the U.S., uh, this plays into local politics, you know, uh, internal politics, right? It, it always has, and I guess starting with um, our, our view, kind of the conventional view is this is a disaster, a disaster for women's rights, disaster for you know liberal democracy, 
Um, what do you talk a little bit about that? The, the, the viewing this through the lens of, I guess, the occupiers, right, for twenty years. Yeah, I, I, and I think that it has to be taken back to the post nine eleven, and um, we see the this uh, U.S. and led intervention in Afghanistan as a response to that. And if we want to talk about it in peace making peace-building terms, um, the initial reaction was to prevent any such further attacks on the United States of America by not uh, giving al-Qaeda a base in Afghanistan. That was the rationale behind it. Um, But then it quickly uh, changed into an idea of uh, nation-building, even though that idea had been very much rejected by uh, President uh, George W. Bush in the in his election campaign, it, it, it quickly became embraced that somehow uh, a democratic society could be made, um, and this shows that uh, the the diffi- at the very least the difficulty of that, and it also perhaps raises the questions about how proper uh, that type of attitude. Uh, is um, and I think we're at a moment now uh, with the withdrawal by the United States of America um, from Afghanistan and, and, and its supporting troops. Um, I, I think it's very easy to talk about the, the domestic political issue. It's very easy to talk about the immediate um, way that that uh, took place and, and, the, and the chaotic scenes we, we, we saw, which I think were disturbing for, for all of us. Uh, if we think, think about it in a in a broader sense, um, that withdrawal was in process anyway. It was a question of a matter of how it was going to take place. Regardless of that, I think we're in an interesting situation now where the, the withdrawal, especially the manner of the withdrawal, has raised questions about you know, what will future U.S. interventions look like, if at all, what kind of support there will be from uh, our allies uh, regarding those uh, projects. Mm. Patrick Mason, I wonder, you talked about negative peace, positive peace. Uh, what if you could apply that to Afghanistan? Was, was, was there ever a real attempt at positive peace here? Was it, was it always negative peace? Well, I, th- I think in the, as, as Colin just mentioned, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 and with the original authorization of the use of force there, uh, certainly, there was a there was a clear mandate to to go after Al Qaeda uh, and the uh, the Taliban, which was supporting it, and and I think you can see that very much in in sort of standard um, uh, whether you want to think about it in military terms or or police action, sort of international police action going after the bad guys, quote unquote. Certainly. Um, I mean, uh, uh, the, the the violence that had been done and and the the terrorism that had been done on on 9/11 was was horrific and demanded an international response. Uh, and so so I think we see that in in, in fairly classic terms that that uh, it's it's a kind of prosecutorial uh, sense of of justice of uh, of going after the perpetrators of, of this, and I think that's widely recognized uh, uh, within the international community. Uh, but but as Colin said, that the mandate very quickly evolved, and there was. Uh, yeah, I think there was a lot of talk about and and efforts towards 
rebuilding or reforming Afghan society. Uh, and very immediately or, or very quickly, the, the issue of women and women's rights and women's equality came up, uh, educational opportunity, uh, democratic institution building. Now, now these, are, these are all elements, actually, of, of building positive peace. Um, but the, you know, one of the big conversations that we have within the field is uh, whether these things can be purely imposed from the outside. Uh, can you import these? Can can a global superpower uh, like the United States, in this case, come in and impose a certain uh, kind of Western liberal notions of, of women's rights, equality, education, democracy, uh, and et cetera, uh, you know, uh, and, and do so at the point of the gun? Uh, now there was there there was uh, a lot of cooperation with local Afghan partners, and uh, but there was also and, and one of the things we've heard about uh, recently, especially after the withdrawal, was the enormous amount of corruption uh, that was endemic uh, with within Afghan society, and and that so many of those billions of dollars uh, that were spent in Afghanistan uh, went to personally enrich uh, certain individuals. Uh, rather than uh, finding their ultimate purpose. So I, th I think Afghanistan uh, uh, creates a really interesting case study for us to think about what does it mean uh, to, to use, uh, an, uh, you know, to, to, to take this opportunity of military intervention to try to turn it into societal reformation um, uh, that has some partners on the ground, but, but uh, is... Uh, it, but but we also know, especially in retrospect, but we knew this all along, uh, that it was extremely problematic uh, in terms of the way that it was actually being executed on the ground. I want to pick that up with Danielle Ross and then uh, start looking toward the future of our involvement or West's involvement uh, in Afghanistan. Um, what, uh, as far as we can tell, you know, then and now, what did the average Afghani want? Did, did, did they want reformation? from the lens of Western values? Well, I think that's, first of all, that's a question that's rarely been asked in foreign interventions into Afghanistan. <laughs> um, so often it's what the, and this is what, again, makes me kind of, you know, vaguely amuses me about using Afghanistan as, as a point to start discussing peacekeeping and peacemaking, because I guess my sort of conventional understanding of peacekeeping is that you have two sides that are in conflict. You have a third side, a third party that is coming in and trying to negotiate between those two sides. And in Afghanistan, you sort of wonder, what, what, what are the two sides? Um, you know, and if it's the United States, then bringing in the United States to negotiate, it sort of doesn't seem to quite make sense. Um, the trouble is that there's... There's not an average Afghani. I mean, certainly at the most basic level, the average citizen of the country wants to be able to live in peace, right? Not to have to worry about their children stepping on landmines, not have to worry about civil wars, not to have to worry about starvation or helicopters bombing their houses, which has been, at this point, I don't know that we have anybody kind of in Afghanistan alive that really remembers what that was like, uh, because that hasn't been the case really since... Um, 1979. Uh, on the other, um, on the other side, though, you have, um, you know, you you once you get past those basic desires for just a peaceful existence, I think you still have very different views within Afghanistan as to what that country is going to look like, and those region that's based on different people from different regions. 
uh, different kind of socioeconomic classes, uh, men versus women, as we've seen, you know, since the withdrawal and these protests of women coming out into the streets, which, you know, you wouldn't pro- have probably have seen in the same way in the 1990s, you know, protesting. We've had these advances. Now, don't push us back. Um, urban rural divides are important. Um, and finally, the ethnic divides is there are so many different ethnic groups within Afghanistan. And too often we talk about Afghans, Afghanistanis, as though this is a coherent group. We're different, these are different ling- linguistic groups, ethnic groups, um, Shiites as well as Sunnis. So each of those, you know, these different groups are going to have different desires and visions for the country. Um, so there's going to be a lot of difficulty in bringing those different groups together. And I think beyond that, if I can say one last thing, there's, we focus so far on Afghanistan and kind of the intervention of superpowers into the region. We also have to talk about this intervention of non-state groups like al-Qaeda and more recently uh, Islamic State Khorasan, which is an offshoot of ISIS. Uh, and Afghanistan as sort of this object in these kind of colonial neo-imperial conflicts, Afghanistan has sort of, for better or worse, acquired this sort of symbolic status as the graveyard of empires, as that place where, you know, Islam fought back and won. Uh, And, you know, so I think it's important to kind of split out, you know, it's, it's going to be an effort to split out kind of what people in the country want from what these other parties, and for that matter, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, historically. Um, in terms Iran. of what they want, Iran, China, um, increasingly, China increasingly. Yes. Uh, Russia, which started mobilizing as soon as they saw the Americans leaving, um, you know, dealing with what all these parties want and separating those voices out from, you know, the voices inside the country to the gr- degree that that's possible. Um, but I think it's very difficult at this point to talk about an average Afghani citizen. I think there are many different sort of factions and groups and visions for the country at the moment. And anyone who's going to peacekeep or try to make peace is going to have the challenge of sorting through those different visions. We'll go to a break soon. I just want to get the perspective from Colin Flint, Patrick Mason, uh, kind of wrapping up this part of the discussion. Colin Flint, um, is is anybody going to uh, want to go in and, and do peacekeeping? I mean, this is this has been for the U.S. been twenty years, and uh, not a whole lot of appetite, I wouldn't think, to 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 go back in i don't know uh, diplomacy perhaps what what does the future look like i i don't i don't see in the immediate future and, and i think this is actually a positive any type of intervention as the u.s led intervention um i do think this is a i, I, th- I think there's one important concept to take from peace building here is that we should recognize that societies are always contentious they're not necessarily conflictual Mm-hmm. And and the matter is here is to recognizing all the divisions, all the challenges, all the legacies that Daniel pointed out as Afghanistan is a contentious society, uh, as there are many other, as all societies are contentious. Uh, and then following up from what Patrick said earlier, to manage that contention is going to have to be something that's done uh, on the ground by Afghani groups and Afghani people. That that's what it has to be. And any into any presence from uh, the outside would would have to be a process which I would guide that peace building process, which is going to have to be locally led and locally desired. That's mm-hmm. why I think that if there's a positive outlook, that that's it to me. If I may just add, I mean, I think for us as kind of outside observers, we may also have to accept that 
at least in the short term, their the what the local vision of an orderly society or you know an acceptable society is may not perfectly match with what our perspective on that would be, especially with regards to women and family law mm-hmm. and the role of religion uh, in legislation and governance. Patrick Mason, I want to get your perspective on this, uh, what, what a future might look like in terms of any involvement from the West. Well, I, th- I think it's uh, in, in the current global order that we have, it's uh, very difficult for, for any country to, uh, to close itself off. Uh, from the West, and and we know that even the the Taliban government now, you know the 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 uh, a huge percentage of their budget uh, of of the national budget is comes from foreign aid, uh, and much of that comes from Western uh, countries, and so so they uh, even even the Taliban uh, with their. Uh, opposition and hostility towards Western military intervention, they also know that they have to be part of the international community in order to govern. Uh, so the West will continue to have a role, but uh, and, and, and this is one of the, the features of peace building, is that it's uh, enormously complex. It's bottom up, it's middle out, it's top down, it's all of these things all at the same time and trying to, it's, it's, it's an exercise in complexity, but that's, that's the way life is. And so, uh, so, so in Afghanistan, there are all these competing uh, international, regional, local uh, uh, actors, and and the question is, uh, how how do they all? Uh, how do you balance all of those interests uh, in the pursuit of of peace? It's very complicated. Well, we are uh, talking with one of the panelists uh, for a panel that's happening this afternoon at four thirty. We're talking with Danielle Ross, associate professor of history. And uh, she, along with Samayas uh, Sarvardzi, uh, who's an Afghani education development expert, and Brigadier General Tyler Smith with the Utah National Guard, will be uh, presenting a panel titled The Afghanistan Crisis, The Challenges of Peacekeeping and Peacebuilding. That's this afternoon at 4.30 in uh, Old Main 115 on the USU campus. It is also available on Zoom. So if you're in the Logan area, you're certainly invited to come in person. But wherever you are, uh, you can participate uh, via Zoom. And to do that, just go to history.usu.edu, the Department of History website, history.usu.edu. There's an announcement there, and just click on the word Zoom, and that will uh, take you to that uh, that link. Um, so it's happening uh, this afternoon, 4.30, Old Main 115, and on Zoom. This is sponsored by the USU Global Peacebuilding Certificate and Tanner Talks from the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. We also have with us uh, two of the leaders of this Global Peacebuilding Certificate Program. Uh, We're talking with Patrick Mason, who is Leonard J. Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture, and Colin Flint, Distinguished Professor of Political Geography at uh, USU. More follows this. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from listeners like you and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. Support also comes from the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra, presenting a Veterans Day Memorial, November 11th in the Danes Concert Hall at 7.30 p.m. This patriotic musical tribute honors Armed Forces veterans' courage, strength, and love of country. Ticket information at AmericanFestivalChorus.org. Here's another happiness hack from Healthy Relationships Utah. Did you know that the key to a healthy stepfamily is a strong couple relationship? 
Research shows one of the best ways to strengthen your couple relationship is through small daily acts of kindness. When it comes to building a love that will last, it really is the little things that count most. This can be a hug in the morning before you leave for work or a quick text while you're away letting your partner know that you care. You could bring home a special treat to enjoy together as you talk about your day or snuggle on the couch as you watch a TV show before bed. These daily acts of thoughtful connection help your partner know how much you value them and the life you're building together. Over time, these small but consistent gestures create feelings of trust, security, loyalty, and intimacy. USU's Healthy Relationships Utah Initiative offers a variety of courses online and in person that help singles, couples, and parents. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about peacekeeping and peace building. And uh, there's a panel discussions happening this afternoon at 4.30 in Old Main 115 on the USU campus and on Zoom. You can find that Zoom link by going to the History Department website, uh, history.usu.edu, history.usu.edu. The title of the panel um, is The Afghanistan Crisis, The Challenges of Peacekeeping and Peacebuilding. And uh, the sponsors are the USU Global Peacebuilding Certificate, which is a fairly new certificate program, and the Tanner Talks from USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Uh, Danielle Ross uh, with the History Department is with us. She's one of the panelists, and uh, the other panelists are Samaya Sarvardzi. I hope I'm saying that uh, somewhat close to correctly. Um, Afghani education and development expert, and Brigadier General Tyler Smith with the Utah National Guard. Also with us in studio uh, for the program today are Patrick Mason, who is Leonard J. Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture, and Colin Flint, Distinguished Professor of Political Geography at Utah State University. Um, I'd like to uh, have each of you in this segment uh, talk about peacekeeping and peace building from the lens of your particular research area an interest. I'd like to start with Patrick Mason. Um, and I, I'm curious, I, I know, Patrick Mason, you have studied, are studying, give lectures, I've written books on peace and violence in Mormon history. I wonder, is that how you come to this? Yeah, so, so I come at this uh, for, um, it's, it's been, been a long time. I've actually been thinking about this for several years. I got a master's degree in international peace studies while I was in graduate school uh, at the Kroc Institute at Notre Dame. And, and I've always been, and, and that gave me a kind of broad-based uh, education in the kinds of issues uh, that are attendant to peace studies and peace building. And, uh, but I've always been particularly interested in the intersections of religion with, with conflict and peace building. So, so most of my research and writing uh, is in uh, the area of, of, of Mormonism, and, and, I, and I've got books on Mormonism on, and violence, a new book on Mormonism and peace and nonviolence. Uh, so, so that's where a lot of my uh, research and, and publishing takes place. But I also teach a course here at USU called Religion, Violence, and Peace. It's, it's one of the foundational courses that students can take in the Global Peace Building Certificate. And, and we take a, a global view, and, and we kind of go through, it It, it doubles as a, a kind of comparative religion course and a, a, a peace and, and conflict course, uh, because we go through the different world religious traditions, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, uh, indigenous traditions, and we think about what do their histories say about this? What do their sacred texts say about this? What, what do, uh, how have they approached these issues of, of conflict? Uh, uh, because religion has been uh, both an agent 
for, for violent conflict throughout history. Uh, we, we certainly know that. We can point to far too many instances of that. But it's also been uh, a tremendous vehicle for, for peace building uh, uh, throughout history and continues to be so. And so, so that's, that's a really enjoyable course to teach um, that, that I come to from a kind of religious studies perspective. I wonder if we could expand on that just a little bit. Um, and I'm thinking about, uh, we aired on UPR a series of uh, debates from the Monk Debate Series, a mm-hmm. uh, famous debate series from Canada. And uh, there was a, a debate on uh, religion. Is religion good or bad, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and and the uh, anti-side, right, anti-religion side, always brings this up, right? That, yeah. that religion is a vehicle uh, for a lot of violence through the history of the world. And it absolutely has been. I mean, it's, it's undeniable. Uh, I mean, that's, that's simply a fact. Uh, uh, I, I do often uh, point out uh, when, when, when people want to make that case that, uh, that in, in modern history, far more people have died uh, at the behest of the secular nation state uh, than of any kind of religious organization or ideology. Uh, uh, partly that's just uh, a matter of mobilization and organization, you know, what the secular nation state has been able to bring to bear in the modern period. Uh, but, but, but that's not to deny the enormous destructive capacity and history that the religious ide- ideas uh, and leaders and movements uh, have um, uh, you know that that's that's an important part of the history, uh, but if you're only telling that sort of that part of the story, you're not telling the whole story. Uh, the, the way that religious actors and, and and movements have been tremendously important throughout history, including in the contemporary period, uh, in terms of humanitarian relief, in terms of development, in terms of literacy, uh, uh, you know, promoting local rights, uh, and in doing a lot of really important work in terms of mediation, negotiation, uh, conflict management. Management and conflict transformation. Uh, so it's it's a complex picture, and and I think we uh, we have to recognize the, the whole picture. I, w- one of the things that I emphasize to my students is that religion gives uh, gives people a set of resources. It's a it's a kind of palette, uh, and different people choose to to, to paint uh, you know from different parts of that palette. Uh, but ultimately, it is it is a matter of choice that um, that that people can select from. Uh, the nonviolent and more peaceful aspects of, of any tradition and choose to, to emphasize that and mobilize that. I'll turn to Colin Flint next. Before I ask you that same question, um, I'm curious, you advise the Aggies Geopolitical Observatory Project. What What is that? Yes, I do. It's, uh, well, what is it? It's, it's, it's the thing I think I'm most proud of in all my career. I think I put it that way. <laughs> it's, a, it's a website that is uh, written by students. They take uh, geopolitical concepts, concepts they learn from uh, mainly my introduction to geopolitics class and textbook, and they take those concepts to provide a um, quite simple understanding of an ongoing issue. Uh, the idea being that a reader will gain more knowledge of that story uh, by applying or thinking about how a particular geopolitical concept helps them uh, further understand and get deeper into that. It, and and the, the, these are very accessible essays. Uh, the students are trained by me to write in a way that you don't really need much knowledge of the issue, and you certainly don't need much issue of the geopolitical concept. The idea being, though, that uh, if you consider the concept, you'll get a better understanding of the issue than if you just considered the issue alone. 
very interesting. And you can get there by going to the, the College of Humanities and, and Social Sciences website, chas.usu.edu slash Aggies, G-O, uh, for Geopolitical Observatory. Well, let me ask you the, the same question. Um, uh, talk about um, global peace building from, from your lens, I guess, geopolitics. Yeah, uh, geopolitics is a is a um, is a subset of the field of geography, and and um, geography, uh, especially in this country, often gets a, a bad rap as a as a jeopardy category rather than an academic discipline. But it's much more than that. Uh, the the basic understanding is uh, in in human geography uh, is that any economic, social, or political uh, process or decision uh, occurs within a particular geog existing geography that is uh, human-made and can change that geography. So a good example of that would be the current uh, issue in this country. Uh, We know that in Utah about political redistricting. It's not just a matter of politics. It's creating particular geographies. Uh, Is there any um, idea of national separatism is a political issue about national identity. Uh, and but it also has political ramifications. Does the country split, or does it, uh, or does it stay together? Uh, and the issue in Afghanistan is a geography of uh, the ability of uh, strong military powers to reach across into someone else's uh, sovereign territory. And of course, those countries don't have the ability to do. To, to do the reverse in a, in, a, in a sustained way. So so that's what uh, 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 geography uh, is about. We, it's also about how we see the world. There's a lot about um, what we call geopolitical representations and the everyday images we have in our mind when we say Afghanistan. But as, uh, as uh, Danielle has said in this program, uh, any society is much more complex than the geographical images we quite quite quickly label label them them with um, and so we're interested in how people live in particular places the differences across places across the world in those different uh, uh, contexts we're interested in how places are linked together why is Afghanistan an important geopolitical area for intervention for example uh, and uh, how we see them how we represent them what sort of mental maps we hold in our mind about different parts of the world which then can justify particular uh, political actions in some places that we wouldn't expect to be justified in other places. Daniel Ross I want to ask you the same question uh, first of all tell us a little bit more about your research and then uh, and how do you come uh, from that to global peace building? I don't know that I've come to global peace building yet. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm trying to recruit them. Yeah, you're welcome anytime. <laughs> yeah. you, you just joined, I guess. Yeah. yeah My research focuses primarily on um, two regions um, one still under Russian control and one formal, f- formerly under Russian control. So the first is um, the Republic of Tatarstan, which is a National Republic inside of the so the Russian Empire uh, inside of the Russian Federation, um, along kind of in the Volga River basin, and the second territory is Kazakhstan, which is now a sovereign state since 1991. Uh, and my research focuses on the history of the the Muslim peoples within both of those territories and their interactions with one another. Um, I mean, in the in the long durée from the 16th century through the present, uh, most of my research focuses really from the 18th century to uh, the mid 20th century. Although I'm increasingly moving into the Soviet period now. 
Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, and when I entered, I guess in terms of relationships to global peacekeeping, when I first entered this field as a graduate student, the Volga Basin in particular in Russia was considered sort of a model for interconfessional peacekeeping and peacemaking. The, oh, the, the Christians and the Muslims get along so well and they've managed not to kill each other, which seems like a really low bar to cross. <laughs> Sometimes it's not bad, right? Yeah. Um, or comparisons between Tatarstan, which had remained in the Russian Federation relatively without military conflict, versus uh, Chechnya, another eth- national ethnic republic in the, Russia- in the Russian Federation that seceded. And both Chechnya and Tatarstan were famous were kind of became famous in a way for refusing to sign um, kind of the the new agreements that brought the Russian Federation into being. So in a sense, refused to join formally. Uh, And, you know, that sort of guided my early research of kind of how do these communities work together. As I've kind of moved ahead, increasingly, I've become more interested in some ways in how this sort of peacekeeping and peacemaking concept can silence um, colonial populations or marginalized populations, um, both you know, in the historical situation, but also in the ways that we study uh, these populations as historians and political scientists in the present. Uh, and so my research has really now shifted more toward looking at, I think what uh, Colin referred to earlier as sort of confrontation um, ways than contestation, ways that, you know, the, the status quo is contested by these minority groups and kind of the rough edges, shall we say, the grind together, rather than, you know, admiring the fact that somehow they've managed not to pull out their guns and start shooting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to follow up just briefly on both of those points. Uh, first of all, uh, it is a low bar to clear, but, uh, but it's cleared uh, so seldom. Yes. <laughs> what are the factors, do you think, in this particular area? Uh, There's a lot of cultural factors, long-term and short-term. For the Volga Basin, this is a Muslim population that has been under Russian rule since the 1500s. It, you know, this is, so if you kind of take that in comparison, this would be a bit like asking, well, why doesn't New Mexico secede from the United States (laughs) at this point? Um, You know, and if you kind of look geographically at how that territory has been under different kind of colonial um, um, arrangements and then, you know, they eventually lead to where it is now. Uh, so that's one reason a simple, you know, it's it's integrated better than some of these other Muslim territories that were taken over later. Uh, the Tatarstan does not experience the same kinds of violent invasions in the 19th century and 20th century that Ch- the North Caucasus do. do. So uh, that, that makes a difference. Um, and this, it culturally... Tatarstan and Chechnya, it's very interesting to compare the two. You know, Chechnya, they took up, uh, groups within the, uh, the republic took up arms. In Tatarstan, people kind of went, yay, Chechens, you show the Russians. <laughs> and then, you know, got out their popcorn and their lawn chairs <laughs> and didn't really go further than that. Um, and there are cultural reasons, there are practical reasons. Uh, there's no way that Tatarstan, frankly, could secede from the Russian Federation. It's smack in the middle of the Russian Federation. Uh, there are no geographic barriers that would be useful in kind of fighting a war of secession. So um, I think there's a lot of factors that come in, the geographical, cultural, and historical, that kind of make those relationships possible. Uh, but I think we need to be reminded, even as we see happening in the United States right now, that um, conditions can change and they can change suddenly. And places that seem kind of peaceful and uncontested can suddenly become sites of contestation. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Let me have you uh, follow up uh, here just very briefly on, on that second point, that uh, even though they're clearing this low bar doesn't mean there's some fraying at the edges. And you said, uh, I think you said the peace building can silence uh, some, can tend to silence some parts of the community. Yes. Well, this is something I've found, and I'm, I'm dealing with it more in my research now, um, are some of the groups, this is going back now to the late imperial period, to the early 20th century, but really Muslim, Muslims voicing resistance to, um, to Russian rule. And for, again, for a while in the historical field, our narrative became, well, they didn't like being conquered, but they, were, they wanted to stay in the empire because they knew they couldn't make it outside the empire or other reasons. Um, and when you go back, there, you know, or there were just a handful of people that were unhappy with this with the empire. And you start to go back and you start finding folk songs and ballads and peasant texts and other things that suggest that this was not three people that were three imams sitting in a room fussing about not wanting to be under Russian rule. That there were definitely, you know, these voices were much stronger and they were much more widely dispersed than previously thought. And, you know, unfortunately as a scholar, when you come into the field and some, you're immediately told there was no resistance you may not go looking for it. And I think that's often been the case um, in, in my field. And then those voices that are there, just they're there, but nobody's actually looking at them or looking for them. Um, so that's what, and as I think both Colin and uh, Patrick have brought up, peacemaking is power, it's a power process. So if you have the United, the United States can invade Afghanistan, Afghanistan cannot invade the United States in a sustained manner. The United States could occupy Afghanistan for a long period. Afghanistan cannot occupy the United States. Uh, and the, all these things sort of, you know, the more power you have, the louder your voice is going to come through in the historical sources and also in the negotiations. It's just to reintroduce our guests uh, here. Uh, we're talking with, uh, you heard right there from uh, Daniel Ross. Uh, who's Associate Professor of History at USU. We're also talking with Leonard, uh, Patrick Mason, Leonard J. Arrington, Chair of Mormon History and Culture, and Colin Flint, Distinguished Professor of Political Geography at USU. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. The West's relationship with water is complicated, and it's only getting more complex. Last year was considerably dry. Maybe the driest we'd seen, and now we're looking at even drier. I think it's been described as a slow-moving train wreck. I'm Alex Hager, reporting on the water issues that define the Western U.S. Listen for stories about the Colorado River Basin on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio programming is supported in part by our members and the Cache Valley Center for the Arts, presenting Georgia on My Mind, celebrating the music of Ray Charles, featuring Clint Holmes, Take Six, Nena Freelon, and Tom Scott, along with the USU Chamber Singers, November 15th at 7.30 p.m. in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Information at cachearts.org. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we're back with a very brief uh, final segment. I just have about six minutes left in the program here. Uh, we're talking uh, with, we're talking about uh, global peacekeeping and peace building. There's a new certificate program at USU on a global peacebuilding certificate. 
And there's a panel discussion. It's happening at 4.30 this afternoon uh, in Old Main 115 and on Zoom. It's called The Afghanistan Crisis, The Challenges of Peacekeeping and Peacebuilding, sponsored by Global Peacebuilding Certificate and the Tanner Talks, a series from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Uh, Danielle Ross is with us. She's uh, Associate Professor of History at USU. She's on the panel. We're also talking with uh, two folks heavily involved in this uh, certificate, and uh, they are Patrick Mason, Leonard G. Arrington, Chair of Mormon History and Culture, and Colin Flint, Distinguished Professor of Political Geography at uh, Utah State University. Uh, so let me turn to Patrick Mason uh, first. I will ask everybody to be quite brief here in this last segment because we're running out of time. Um, are, are there examples we can point to? I guess there is kind of a dearth of examples. Uh, do we go back to Northern Ireland as an example of successful peace building? Oh, we actually, I mean, that's that's one of the narratives is that is that uh, is that peace building doesn't work very often. But actually, uh, we have lots of examples of, of the way that it does, and mm. especially when you look at uh, kind of local examples. Uh, and so, so certainly, I, I think Northern Ireland has generally been a, a, a success. I mean, no peace process is ever successful. And, and one of the things that, that I learned from one of my professors in graduate school is however long a society or culture was, was in conflict, especially violent conflict or, or, a, or a, you know, kind of uh, position of in, inequality and instability, it's going to take at least that long to come out of it and, and create a sustainable and just peace. And so sometimes we look at these societies that have been in conflict for decades uh, and then want everything to turn around within a year or two or with the signing of a peace treaty. Uh, so it's a, peace building has a much longer view. This is one of the differences between it and peacekeeping it is it has oftentimes a generational view, uh, not just a short-term view. And so so I think we can, we can look at um, a, a, a lot of processes. I mean, I think we can look at, look at Europe, uh, especially post-World War II, as, as a really impressive ex- example of, a, of a, a region that had been in violent conflict for literally centuries uh, that, that has uh, come to not, it's not exactly Shangri-La, uh, but, it, but it's uh, come to a position of tremendous peace and security and prosperity in recent decades. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good example. We tend to discount that. That's <laughs> We don't think about that, right? Yeah, we forget what a mess Europe but, was <laughs> for much in, of the early modern period. The entire so. continent got, got better. Yeah. Uh, Colin Flint, you said earlier, societies are always, in contenti- or always contentious, but not always, would you say, confrontational. Um, what, what, what's the top one or two factors, do you think, to, to, to get them uh, to promote uh, peace building? Well, it's it's dialogue, but dialogue that uh, that is 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 very multi-directional and 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 allows one to have to reflect on one's own position of power, one's own privilege, uh, try to uh, recognize that as part of a conflict, uh, and to try to then turn and understand uh, where other people are coming from. Uh, and uh, create the conversation that way. Uh, and really, it requires us to look at ourselves uh, as much as it requires us to look at other people. Uh, I think that that's an, an essence of, of, of peace building. Uh, and I think that um, an element of trust and hope, our dominant narratives in society are about war, uh, the efficacy of war and the military. Uh, we're very easy to point to peace building as something that is naive, that doesn't work, 
uh, we never really turn that lens towards war as much as we do to peace. Uh, uh, why does wars take time to achieve their goals? Uh, so we should let peace take time to achieve its goals as well. Uh, the successful prosecution of a war uh, for, for the victor is going to have its ups and its downs. Uh, when we think about downs in, or bad uh, turns in peace building, we throw up our hands often and say, well, that's pointless. What, what do we do? But we don't reflect upon how a long war such as, say, World War II had many periods or many events in which it seemed like the Allies were going to lose. Um, and, so, and so just reflecting on who we are, what our beliefs are, what our understandings and goals are, uh, realize it's a long-term and forever ongoing process. Uh, these are sort of the humility that's re required to create the dialogue that can make peace. Daniel Ross, just thirty seconds. So we'll give you the <laughs> last last word here. Um, what's the What's the biggest takeaway from our discussion? You hope people take away. Well, I think to build on what Colin says, this is the, and Patrick, uh, peacekeeping is a process. It's a long process. It's a fraught process. Um, and it's a process where you're going to have setbacks and things that do not work out. It's a process that also is, you know, as you, if you're going into it as a negotiator, you have to keep in mind that, you know, your position of privilege vis-a-vis -vis others. Um, but it, it is, at the end of the day, a process and you can't expect, you can't fix Afghanistan or any other similar situation overnight. We'll leave it there. Um, we have been talking with uh, Daniel Ross, Associate Professor of History at USU. Thanks for coming in. Uh, Patrick Mason is um, Leonard J. Arrington, Chair of Mormon History and Culture at USU. Thanks. My pleasure. And Colin uh, Flint is Distinguished Professor of Political Geography at uh, Utah State University. Thank you. Thank you. And there's a panel discussion, uh, 4.30 this afternoon, Old Main 115. Uh, but if you're not in the area, you can still participate through a Zoom link. The title is Afghanistan Crisis and Challenges of Peacekeeping and Peacebuilding. Go to history.usu.edu, history.usu.edu. Uh, click on the word Zoom in that description. You can, you can Zoom in 4.30 this afternoon. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. <laughs>